You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. All right, back to Ephesians, part six that we are in. And uh, my guess is we're not going to get all the way through part six. Jeff said part six A, and that's okay. Uh, we will be respectful of time, but we also don't want, want to skip this. If you missed last week and came expecting to find us in Ephesians 3, we're saving that for the end of the series. And if you go back and look at the archives last week, we can explain why we are doing that. But we started in Ephesians 4, and we talked about our calling to what, that we are to walk worthy of. We always think of these grandiose things he's calling us to do, but in the chapter, he's actually calling us to unity. He's calling us to unity and then wants to give us gifts, and the ultimate purpose of those gifts is to mature us in him again to unity. The whole church running around trying to accomplish big things for God, and he points out the thing that we trip over the most is our inability to get along with one another. If you want to accomplish the will of God in your life, above all things, make it your mission to live at peace with those around you and put that above the idea of financial gain or platform. It's harder than being financially successful. It's harder than gaining a platform. It's also what God's will is for all of us. If you sacrifice the idea of pleasing God in pursuit of unity, because you want to chase what you think success is, you're actually chasing renown and wanting to make your name bigger than his. And he said, no, no, what I want you to pursue the most is unity as brothers and sisters. And he writes about the structure of the Ephesian church being centered around the fivefold gifts and how we've kind of gotten a little lopsided on that, and that's all in the archives. We're not going to go over that again. So at the close of the first portion of Ephesians 4 we encounter a shift. In the early part of the chapter, he's talking to the body, he's talking to everybody, and all of a sudden he makes a shift and he's very intently talking to you. We hear things differently when they're coming at us directly than when they're coming at us as a group, don't we? One of the things Kelsey and I learned way back early when we were raising funds as missionaries is the more people you had in the room, the fewer people did anything. Our first fundraising group, we crowded our house with about 50. It was terrible. We had 50 people in our house, kids running everywhere, food everywhere. I'm trying to share our heart. It's awful. When the thing's done, we raised almost zero finances. It, was, it would have had to get better to be terrible. It was that bad. And we had good friends who came to us and would not leave. I'm so disgusted. I just want everybody out of my house. I want to burn the house down. And they won't leave. And uh, after everybody left, our friend Diane says, you hated that, didn't you? I said, that was terrible. She said, I know. You had too many people in the room. I'm like, we're trying to raise money. How can you have too many people in the room? She said, when you fill the room, people look around and say, somebody should help this clown. When you sit across the table from two people, they think, I got to help this clown. And it's true, we hear things differently as individuals than we do as a group. So for the next whatever we got, until you run out of steam or I do, listen to this, not as a group, but as individuals. This passage is the Apostle Paul sitting across from you at Waffle House and coffee is unlimited, okay? He takes his time and he wants you to soak this in. In fact, just put your hand on yourself somewhere and we're going to... I, we never do this. We're going to do this. A little weird. We're going to do this. Pray after me, okay? 
Holy Spirit, I am here for this. Make this message mine. Speak to me in practical application. And help the preacher. He's not very good. Amen. I have taken record of everyone who joined me on that last. You all made a choice, okay? You could have faded out gracefully. No, there was more energy on that than in the early part. Terrible, terrible. Okay, Ephesians 4, 17. We are going to read the Bible today. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Why is he saying Gentiles? Because there were also Gentile believers here, but he's making a broader statement about those who don't know God and how they walk one way and believers are to walk another. And he doesn't say don't walk like them. He said don't walk like them anymore. Don't act like you are completely different and you've never been like that. It's like, actually, some of you are doing it right now. Don't walk like them anymore. Life is a process, but salvation is a moment. And when it is genuine, it leads to life change and to walk change. I have a conviction that as believers, we are supposed to stand out way more than we actually are willing to stand out. Most of my life in ministry, the emphasis on, on ministry in the Western church has been to convince the world that we're just like them. We're just like you. We're actually, we're just like you. We're, we're just like you. If your life is a wreck and you're looking in the windows and they're saying, we're just like you, why do you want to go in? He says, no, 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 don't walk any longer like the Gentiles walk. How many of you have a friend who is painfully unaware of self. Like when you go to talk to them, they stand a little too close. They repeat themselves over and over again. They impose and they don't know it. You know, they come over to borrow one tool and they leave with nine. They just have no sense of how they come across. There are all areas that we're a little bit self unaware, but those who don't follow Jesus are almost supernaturally unaware. Paul details the difference here in a progression that individuals who do not know God find themselves on and they're unaware that they're even on this path. But he lays it out for them, Ephesians 4, 18 and 19. They are darkened in their understanding. These are the people that he tells us not to walk like anymore. Okay, he's talking about other people, not us, of course. Ish. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let's talk a little bit about that idea of being ignorant and hardened. Ignorance is not an insult, okay? We've made it to be one, but to be ignorant is to be unaware of something. It's a state of being, and we're all ignorant of something. I don't know the circumference of the moon. Doesn't really matter, okay? I'm ignorant. However, if I really need to know that, especially in our world, there's no need not to know the circumference of the moon. It's possible. It's knowable. So if you are ignorant of something, and it's important, and it's knowable, that's on you. If you need to know something and it's, there's a way to find out and you don't pursue it, that goes beyond ignorance. That's willful ignorance. 
The Bible is full of verses that tell us simply that desire is all it takes to overcome your lack of knowledge of God. All it takes is desire. Proverbs 8, 17 says, those who seek me, find me. It's not those who figure me out. Those who deduce all the right principles. No, all it takes is for you to seek him to obliterate the idea of ignorance about him. A.W. Tozer, I've used this quote over and over again. He says, we can have as much of God as we want. That want or that curiosity or that desire is enough for God to reveal himself to you. And God wants to be found so much that he has put clues in the universe even for those who are not near him to see him and to lead them to him. Acts 17, 26, 27 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from any of us. He says, all it takes is for you to seek him. Is he here? Lord, are you there? Oh, there's a hand in the dark. I found it's that possible to eliminate our ignorance of who he is and what he does. Ecclesiastes 3 says he has set eternity on our hearts. That if every man, woman, and child on the earth that fosters that wondering of who he is receives some element of revelation. History says if they don't settle for ignorance but they pursue a wondering, God will reveal himself to them in miraculous ways. Answers are available, and the opposite of ignorance isn't knowledge, it's curiosity. Because if you're curious, you'll find him. The curious about God will find God. Let me recommend another book. This is my last book of the day, okay? I've mentioned this before, over and over again. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. It's on Amazon for about 12 bucks. Cover is different. If you buy the cover that I have, it's like $40. I don't know why. But the, the plain cover edition is about 12. If you are interested in missionaries and in remote places, stories to tell your kids, and what about people who don't know God and what does God do with that? This is an amazing book. He tells phenomenal stories of people who just a simple curiosity about the Lord led them in miraculous ways to learn about Jesus. Repeatedly, the scriptures say those who seek God find God. It's those who don't seek him and continue in willful ignorance that develop hard hearts. He tells a story in the book about a man named William Marcus Young. Now, I've met this guy's great-grandson. Marcus Young is alive today and heads up a ministry in Southeast Asia where his family has ministered in some form or fashion for four generations. But William Marcus Young, his great-grandfather, has this crazy story. He's been well-documented from several points of view. 120 years ago, he is ministering in Southeast Asia, and for years he saw no breakthrough. Just, he's street preaching, getting nowhere. And he goes to a different village one day, and he stands up in his box, and he's street preaching. And unbeknownst to him, in doing so, he fulfills a local legend that one day a white man dressed in white with a white book would come and tell them about the one true God. And so suddenly, there's a massive revival among these people. And in this village, 
10,000 people become baptized in just the course of about a year. So he goes from no converts to all of these converts. But even so, a good distance away, there's a village of people called the Wa people. This would have been in in Burma or what we know as uh, Myanmar. And the Wa people, nobody goes to the Wa people because they're headhunters. So for whatever reason, no missionary has necessarily felt called, okay, to go to the Wa people. But the Wa people hear about what is going on down in the village, and the wise man of the village gathers some of the young men that are following him, and he says, go down and learn what you can about the one true God. And he takes a white donkey, and he said, the donkey will lead you, and he slaps the donkey on the rear end, and the donkey trots out of the village, and the guys go, okay. And they follow this donkey. I don't mean for a day. I don't mean for a couple of days. For weeks, they follow this donkey uphill, downhill, through ravines, across rivers. They just keep following. Sounds crazy, but I mean, I know people who'd follow a pillar of fire or a cloud. They follow this donkey, and it finally finds its way into a compound, and it walks up to a well, and it looks down on a well, and the men gather around, and they look down, and there's a man down digging the well. William Marcus Young, the missionary. They said, will you tell us about the one true God? He comes up. They want him to go to his village. He leads them to the Lord, said, I've got all these thousands of converts here. I really can't go to your village right now. But mark my words, if I can never come, my son will come. And if my son can't come, my grandson will come. And if my grandson can't come, my great-grandson will come. Over a hundred years later, Marcus Young, unaware of that entire event, he knew, he knew about the white course he didn't know about what his grandfather had told them feels called to the wa people goes and ministers for a season to the people if the lord is so intent on answering people's curiosity about god down to the fourth generation don't you think that he can reveal himself to you if you're hungry like if you come to this place and sword lord can you show me don't you think he can do that the god who will meet the hungry heart of a remote headhunting tribe and will keep his promises down to the fourth generation, if we believe that, then what excuse do we have for not knowing him? We have more faith that those who seek him in the far reaches of Burma will find him than those that seek him in the remote parts of Lenexa. Like we have more faith for the tribes than we do the suburbanites. But the hungry ones will find him. Now here is where the Lord meets hunger gets dangerous. The Lord is gracious and he gives us opportunity to seek him. But when we choose not to, we enter into what is called willful ignorance. And the Bible says that leads to hard hearts. America is in some respects on much more dangerous ground than some of the most bloodthirsty tribes of the earth. Because we wave the flag of ignorance, an excuse that will not last forever, and if we continue to claim it, we'll make our hearts harder and harder and harder. And Paul couples that idea of willful ignorance, not just being unaware, but choosing not to be unaware, with a hardness 
of heart. You know what a callus is, most of you. Those of you who don't, you need to learn, okay? Callus, a callus develops in your hands when you've worked hard. It it's, kind of insulates you from any sort of feeling. It's one thing to have a callus on your hand. It's another thing to have it on your heart. Hard-heartedness, choosing not to walk in the understanding of God that is available to you, doesn't mean God chases you harder. It means you get harder, and suddenly it's easier to ignore him than it was. The unbeliever who says, not right now, will eventually say, never God, because the calloused heart has resisted the truth, and now it bounces off them like a penny off the pavement. Some of you have so willfully remained ignorant of things that God wants to speak to you that if Jesus himself were to appear to you, you would find a reason to convince yourself it was for somebody else. That's the danger that comes from resisting the witness of the Holy Spirit in our heart. Learn to respond to the slightest move of the Holy Spirit in your heart because if you resist it, you can resist a stronger push as well. And Paul says that a calloused heart is actually given to sensuality. Now, the word sensuality in our language, we have defanged a little bit, okay? Because we've become so much more open talking about things of sexuality and acknowledging uh, what's appropriate, not appropriate, not appropriate, that we just, you know, sensuality, everyone has a, has a sensual side. Other versions of scripture translate it to lewdness or licentiousness. This isn't talking about biblically appropriate relationships. This is talking about throwing off all restraint that you might have had before you allowed your heart to grow callous. Throwing off all shame and all fear. If you look at our culture, this is an area where as a culture we have thrown off all shame. Nothing has changed in society's thinking over the past 60 years like how we think about sexuality. We think about work differently than we did, but not that much. We still value hard work. We think about raising kids differently than did 60 years ago, but not that much. We still want the best for our kids. But we think about lewdness and licentiousness drastically differently than we did 50 or 60 years ago. To the point where there are those in the church that are waving their finger at others in the church and saying, who are you to pass judgment? And you might say, well, you know, Randy, the things that we hear now, these sexual deviances, they have always existed. People are just talking about them right now. To a measure, that's true. But people are talking about them like they order a ham sandwich. They're not talking about them like they talked about them before. I'm not surprised that we have the level of promiscuity and deviance in our culture, okay? History is marching forward, and we know what the end of days will look like. Hearts are hard, and they're broken. What I struggle with is the level of endorsement that it finds in the church. Some of you are like, you're banging this drum pretty hard. This drum has not been banged very hard for a long time. The existence of evil is a fact. The celebration of evil is an abomination. And as a body of Christ, we can't do that. 
We're driving to Springfield, I don't know, maybe six, eight weeks ago. We drove through Springfield and we went, drove by a church that celebrates a, a variety expression of expressions of sexuality, many that are not biblical, okay? They celebrate that. And on the side of the building, big as life, this is their motto. And it, it struck me, I was so curious about it. I went back and looked it up long. This is the tagline of the church. This is what they say about themselves. We're not for everyone because we're for everyone. In addition to my grammatical problems with that, you're saying, if you don't believe like us, you don't fit here. We're for them, but we're not for you. They're like, it's not even logical. We're not for everybody because we're for everybody. They're actually not for everybody. They're for hard-hearted people who have drifted towards sensuality. Isaiah 5.20 says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Like it just lays it out. This is dangerous ground. But it is dangerous ground that we find ourselves on, not because we went looking for it, but because we maintained ignorance when understanding was available. And because we chose ignorance, our heart grew hard, and being our heart grew hard, it, we drift into sensuality. And then at the end of this litany where Paul warns them that if we stay in ignorance, we go hard-hearted, and hard-hearted leads to this, he flips the switch onto the spotlight of a better future. He says, I know it's dark, but it doesn't have to be dark. God never leaves you in the darkness if you want a way out. He dives into the latter portion of this chapter with the idea that your life does not have to be this way. Even if you came into this world with distinct disadvantages, the gospel still works in your life. Your story can be different from your cultures. Your story can be different from your families. Your story can be different from the one you've already started to write. And all it takes is being willing to turn over the pen and say, if you reveal yourself to me, I'll live up to what you show me. Ephesians 4.20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. He says, this pattern that we see among the Gentiles of being hard-hearted and being willfully ignorant and drifting into sexual sin is not the pattern that I have for your life. After laying out this dangerous course, making it obvious that so many are on that path, encouragement comes because it doesn't have to be that way. There are two paths. One leads to hope and a good future, and the other leads to eternal damnation. And he said, you don't need to stay on that path anymore. Ephesians 4, 21. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, if anybody told you the whole story, this is what you learned and this is what you're putting into practice. But if you learned this and you didn't put it into practice, you're actually not on the right path. He says, if you learned the gospel of Jesus, the way it was taught to you and you internalized it, there is a better future for you. He said, if you were taught the truth about Jesus, this is what you were taught. And he gives them a three-step path to guarantee that they don't continue to live the way the Gentiles live. I want to 
actually put a cork in it right there. We're going to revisit that next week. We don't have to... A fool preaches all of his notes, okay? It's just true. And there's so much in that that I don't, I don't want to abbreviate it. I just... Uh, what, this is what I want to get you to get from this morning. There is a better way to live than the way your neighbors are living. But we have to show it to them. They're not going to... Um, you have neighbors that are curious about the things of God and you don't even know it because you've never had the conversation. You will run into people today that are curious about the Lord And someday you're the person saying, God, where are you? And someday you're the white donkey. And you're pointing them to the truth. Kelsey mentioned it in her prayer. Jeff came up and said, man, that bore witness to me. We want to host the presence, not just so we can sit around and play in the pool, but so that we can take it out there. Do you understand the danger your friends and neighbors are in? The path they're on does not lead to a happy life. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. Maybe if Nick can come back down. Father, we ask right now for faces and names of people who are on the path that Paul described right now. The one you told us not to walk anymore. We ask for conviction in our own hearts if we have held back. Father, my heart was so stirred this week because David Gagne was texting me about his friend who he's, he's known for five years who in a crisis is asking him about you. David's saying, I think the last five years of my life have been about this moment. We ask for those opportunities. For those opportunities where those who know Jesus are suddenly face-to-face with those who are curious about God. And that by our example and by our words and by the unction of the Holy Spirit on our lives that we would point them to a more excellent way. Stand with me right now. Just encourage you to lift your hands and begin to ask him for encounters and conversations with people this week who are hungry for God. Lord, would you point us to the hungry ones? Lord, would the curious ones find us before their hearts grow hard. We pray for family members who don't know you, for neighbors who don't know you, for coworkers who don't know you. Right now, God, that you would soften their hearts, the curiosity would come to the surface, and they would respond, and we would be there for them. Father, we repent. We repent for hoarding the presence of God for ourselves when others are hungry for it. Just continue to pray for those people as Nick leads us in worship for a moment. Father God, Lord, would you move? Lord, would you move? Father, we pray for family members, neighbors,